church. Good to see you all this morning. Good to be in the Lord's house again to uh, read and study his word and to sing praises to him and then to open um, up for the lesson that we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, join me, if you would, in the book of Jonah, the Old Testament, what is known as a minor prophet. It's not a minor prophet because he wasn't as significant as the others, but pretty much a reference to the size of the book. And the minor prophets are just smaller in their um, relation to their size, but not their significance. Um, so uh, that's the reason why it's called a minor prophet. We've been journey- we've been, we started, uh, I think, three weeks ago on working through the book of Jonah, and we're still in the first six verses. So we just kind of want to give you a little bit of a, of a background or an overview of the main themes. If you'll remember correctly, the title of the series kind of helps us understand to keep in our mind what the main themes are. Uh, one is God's sovereign mercy, and that God is uh, orchestrating in the book of Jonah an opportunity for him to display his mercy and it's a, it's a sovereign opportunity. It's not ever put in question as to what is going to happen in the story. It's before Jonah even goes to Nineveh, he knows exactly what God's going to do in Nineveh. And so we see God's sovereign mercy throughout the book of Jonah. And then we see a stubborn messenger. And Jonah is a reflection, if you will, of, of all uh, believers uh, it's the same thing that Jonah struggled with as the thing that we struggle with. Every time God calls us to do something, every time God's word speaks into our lives, some type of a, a direction or an instruction, our initial response to it is very, very similar to Jonah's. Amen? It is, isn't it? I mean, it's like it's hard to acknowledge that, but that is a reality. And it's not, <clears throat> we're not always being called to go to Nineveh, are we? And we're not always being called to go to um, you know, it's not always about an evangelistic call. How about the call to be a good husband or the call to be an honoring wife or the call to be a godly parent? What, what about these calls that God, all throughout his word, he has all of these calls in our lives, a call to be humble, a call to be pure, a call to be um, honest and full of integrity. We have all of these calls, and, and I, 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 that's a few and we can look at the Ten Commandments and we can see ten right there, the call to those commandments, to fulfilling and obeying those commandments. But what we have to understand by the book of Jonah is that God expresses to us a natural man's attitude towards the call of God on their life. How does the natural, and I'm not even, this is a prophet of God. I mean, Jonah is not any just natural man. This is somebody that's a, uh, uh, somebody who's heard the voice of God before and has responded to it in obedience. But here he faces a little bit of a different type of a call, and his attitude is a little bit different, and he responds to it in a different way. But we're meant to see in Jonah the stubborn messenger. We're meant to see ourselves. We're also meant to see if you're un an unbeliever with us this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, um, you're seen in Nineveh. You're meant to see yourself in that nation of people who were uh, wicked and ungodly and needed redemption and needed salvation. And we're all there at some point in time, aren't we? And before, before a person comes to know Christ, they're a sinner and they're in need of a Savior. 
And all of us are in that. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel is it really levels the playing field, doesn't it? No, no one is any better or more worthy than anyone else. We're all equally sinful, and we're all equally in need of a Savior. And, uh, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. He is the only hope that anyone has. And so we've got to keep that in mind as we go through this, that um, where we fit into the story, where we fit into the narrative. So Jonah 1 this morning, I'm going to read the first six verses that will be our main text. We'll look at a few other texts um, in a few other books of the Bible that were uh, prophets that were during the same time as Jonah, so we can get a kind of a perspective on what he's dealing with. But let's read the first six verses together. The Bible says in verse number one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose. Let me just stop there and pause for a moment. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to, into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to their God or to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them, which is simply a reflection of doing whatever we can do humanly possible to avoid God's chastening. When we run from God, God chastens us, and that's what we'll look at next week. But unloading the cargo is simply a way of mankind saying, I'll figure it out on my own. And the first thing we have to realize is that God is, God is consistently chasing his children. First John says that every one of God's children endures chastening on a regular basis. So all the things that we deal with in this life are often, for the most part, they're, for a believer, chastening. God is molding us into uh, his image or the image of Christ. But what do we do? Well, we throw all the stuff off the ship to try to figure it out, right? Unload the ship because it'll be able to hold up under the pressures of these winds. Does it, ever, does it ever work? When we figure it out, does it ever work? It doesn't, does it? And we don't just see this in the story of Jonah, but we see it all throughout scriptures where people unload their cargo ships to try to, try to appease God's um, chastening. We miss the picture, don't we? We miss the point. The Bible says, he goes on, but Jonah had gone down into the lower part or the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. What an amazing, what, the, the word fast here means he was in a deep sleep. And this is a serious sleep. I mean, it had to be a serious sleep, Right? I mean, Jonah was in a serious sleep here while, I mean, I just can't even fathom it. I mean, what kind of sleep would you have to be in to have these waves, you know, beating the ship and have all the, the, the sailors throwing everything overboard because that's how bad it is and, and you're, in the, you're in the ship sleeping, right? That must have been a pretty, he must have been having a good dream or something, I don't know. But 
uh, he was in a deep sleep. And um, we need to consider the fact that I think we as Christians are in a deep sleep today, like Jonah was. And we missing, we're missing what we're supposed to be doing. The Bible goes on to say, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. The second time we see that word arise here. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps he or the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The title of this morning's message is Jonah's Stubbornness Towards God's Calling. What is obvious to everyone on the outset of this story in the book of Jonah is that Jonah was not excited about God's call for his life. Jonah was not buying it. Jonah did not buy into what God thought was the best pattern for Jonah's life. It was a situation and a scenario that Jonah wasn't willing to go through. It was something that Jonah wasn't willing to do. And we can all fit into that scenario. However, before we judge Jonah too harshly, amen, let's understand him a little bit. Let's seek to comprehend what he's going through. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn uh, with me back a few books to the book of Hosea. Just before Joel... Hosea is a contemporary of Jonah. Amos is also a contemporary of Jonah. Two books to read if you want to get a a good grasp on what's going on in Jonah. The end of Hosea in the 10th chapter. In the 7th century BC or before Christ, Jonah is being called by God to bring a message to the Ninevites that he knows will result in their blessing. We see that in chapter number four. Jonah is called to bring a message to the Ninevites that he knows will result in in their blessing, even though they have recently attacked and annihilated the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. In addition to In addition to Jonah knowing what has already happened to the people of Israel from the Assyrians or the Ninevites, Jonah also knows, based upon prophecy, that it will not be too long into the future that the Ninevites or the Assyrians will come up against Israel again and will annihilate them and bring them into captivity. So we've got to understand what Jonah has just experienced and what Jonah knows as a prophet of God is that these people are not just evil people, but they're going to destroy us. They're going to hurt us. They're going to bring pain to our people. Not only are they going to, but they have already. Hosea chapter number 10, here's what Hosea says. In verse 13, he says, You have plowed iniquity... You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruits of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Just stop and meditate on that for a moment. That's throwing stuff overboard. That's figuring it out on our own. Therefore, verse 14, the tumult of war shall shall rise among your people And all your fortresses shall be destroyed. 
Notice this, As was and Shalman, Shalman, who is the king of Assyria, as, as he destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Watch this. This is past. He's talking about, he's referring to something that happened in the past. He's referring back to it, saying that it's going to happen again if you don't repent. He says, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And then he says, prophetically, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And then he goes over in chapter number 13 of the same book, in verse 16, the Bible says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. I read this to you for you to get a little bit of the heart of Jonah. To know where he's coming from in this situation, in this scenario. To know what he's feeling. To know what he has experienced just in the recent past. And what he is anticipating to take place in the near future. Isaiah chapter number 10 tells us the same thing. That Assyria will be used by God as a tool to bring... To bring um, chastening on the children of Israel. It is clear to me from the history and the prophecy that Jonah was aware of that he had significant reason to run from Tar- to run to Tarshish. He had significant excuse to not obey God. And not only did he have significant excuse to not obey God, but what we must understand from this text is is that he's not simply disobeying God, he's disobeying God's word. God's disobeying God's word is equal to disobeying God. When God's word presents something to us, the Bible says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is like when you open up your Bible in the morning and you read it and you find instruction and you find direction on what you should do as a, as a human being, as a man or a woman or a child. You find instruction from God's word and you're put in the same situation that Jonah's put in. Do I submit to this direction or do I flee from it? This is the word of God being presented to Jonah. No different than the word of God is presented to us often. And the word of God is presented to us in such a way that we have a responsibility to respond to it. And not just to respond to it, but the calling is to respond to it in submission. It's to respond to it in humility. It's to trust that God knows best and to obey what he, what he calls us to do. So every instruction, this is an even, I believe this is an evangelistic type of book. The main meaning of it is, is we're to go into the world and preach the gospel. But every instruction from God's word is meant to be obeyed. And every time we receive an instruction from the Lord, we are put in Jonah's shoes. We're putting them on. God asks us to love people sometimes that are not lovable, right? God asks us to help people sometimes that have hurt us. God asks us to forgive people sometimes who have done great wrong against us. God asks a number of things to, uh, to, for us to do. He tells us if we, if, uh, in, in his Sermon on the Mount, if a man slaps you on the cheek, what do you do? Slap him on the cheek back? What do you do? 
the instruction is you turn to the other cheek. If somebody asks you to go a mile with them, what do you do? You say, I will go a second mile with you. If somebody asks you for your outer garment, what do you do? You give them your outer garment, then you give them your inner garment. These are are things that we're faced with every single day of our life. The Word of God is being presented to us as we read it, as we study it, as we come to church on Sunday mornings. The Word of God is being presented to it, and we're being placed in Jonah's shoes. And and, um, it is likely, if you're like me, that I will respond like Jonah did. And then it's also likely, if you're like me, that I'll end up in a storm, and then I'll end up in the belly of a fish, and then I'll end up being spit out somewhere, and I'll go and do what God told me to do, and then I'll end up complaining about what God told me. It's, it's, it is us. It is us. All day long, it is us. Amen. Like Jonah, we are called to warn the wicked about God's imminent judgment so that they will repent have faith in Jesus, and experience his blessing, forgiveness, and deliverance. That's what we're called to do evangelistically. Very similar to Jonah. And we're not called to be selective. You know, go ye into all, uh, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel or make disciples, as the Bible tells us. It doesn't say or, or to every creature, make disciples of every creature. It doesn't give you the opportunity to, to be selective, We're called to do what God's word tells us to do. There are four things that I want to to focus on in in the text this morning that I believe will be helpful for us as we think about why did Jonah run? Why do we run from God? What What does it look like, or four elements, if you will, of what it looks like to run from God? And we'll look at the the four elements. The first one, and I'll just give you all four, and then we'll start to tackle them one by one. When do we run? When did Jonah run, if you're thinking about it from Jonah's perspective? Where do we run? What is the price of running? And why do we run? And I'll say that again if you're taking it down on a sheet of, that's been handed out. It'd be helpful to follow it that way. When do we run? Where do we run? What is the price of running? And why do we run? Okay, first of all, when do we run? The Bible says of Jonah that God told him to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up against them. But Jonah rose to flee. This is a very interesting word. The word carries with it a great weight of, of in, in, in relation to timing. It really reflects not so much on what Jonah is doing as much as it does on the timing of what Jonah is doing. The word means to to bolt, to flee suddenly or immediately, to flee in haste or to run away. The first thing that we learn from your, in your outline is that Jonah's reaction to God's command in his word was instantaneous. There was no hesitation, there was no meditation, there was no prayer, there was no considering of consequences. Jonah simply responded immediately to a command of God that possibly he did not fully understand, but maybe he did fully understand it, and that's why he responded so immediately. 
But Jonah didn't spend any time praying about the situation. He didn't any, spend any time meditating on perhaps why God was calling him to do this. Jonah acted instantaneously to the command of God. If you think about it, if we go to uh, the Gospel of Matthew in the 13th chapter, you have the seed falling on four different types of soil, right? The instantaneous response to the seed falling on the soil is that the birds come in and take it away, don't they? Especially when it falls on that hard, that uh, rocky type of hard soil. There's no hesitation on Jonah's part. Jonah responds immediately, instantaneously to God's command in a, in a way of disobedience. Now, it's important to remember this. If your response is obedience, instantaneous obedience is always the right answer. If God has called us to do something, God is telling us to do something. Uh, I think of Joseph back in the book of Genesis when he was uh, tempted to fall into sin. He didn't pray about whether or not he should fall into sin. He just instantaneously obeyed the voice of God and the, the command of God and ran. So instantaneous response of obedience to the commands of God is always the right answer. But an instantaneous response of disobedience to the word of God or the commands of God is always the wrong answer. And usually it is a lack of thinking through, a lack of praying through, a lack of meditating through a situation that is difficult and challenging that leads us to respond in a way of disobedience. Our calling from God's word is when he commands us to do something, our calling is to be obedient. And oftentimes when God calls us to do something, he doesn't explain himself. He doesn't even sometimes give us a reason for why he's calling us to do something. He simply presents himself as God and us as servants and requires us or expects of us that we will obey him. Have you ever been in that place before in your Christian life where obedience to God's commandment led to understanding God's commandment? It doesn't go the other way where you're like, God, just, just explain yourself to me. Now you're God and he's not. What God wants to do is be on the throne and for you to be a humble servant of him so that when he requires something of us, we obey him and he has no problem then explaining to us what he is doing. If you think about this with the disciples, Jesus would, would, would often do miraculous things, do uh, miracles on people and then later he would take, after all of those events was over, he would take the disciples aside later and he would do what? Explain himself to them. Doesn't come, understanding doesn't come before obedience. Understanding comes after obedience. It's that God is God and he is requiring me to do something and I must trust him with the fruits and the results and obey him and then I will likely or possibly, or maybe it doesn't even matter if I ever understand. We run from God instantaneously. We just, we just don't think through it. The Bible tells us in Luke 14, 28, no, one, no man builds a building without first sitting down and calculating the cost or thinking through the cost. 
thinking through the consequences to make sure that he has enough to get the job done. I often think of Gideon, and probably many of you are familiar with the story of Gideon. He goes out with 300 men against over 100,000 men, and the Lord gives him an amazing victory. And people often minimize Gideon because he put out those fleeces. You remember the fleeces? Like, Lord, if you, if you, want, if you really want this to happen, then please answer these fleeces. Do you know where Gideon finds himself at in the Bible? Hebrews 11, which is the hall of, it's the hall of faith. It's the hall of fame for faith people. Gideon's, Gideon's asking God to confirm his, his will wasn't a negative thing. Gideon was unsure. And so he asked God, what often happens with us is when we're unsure of what God is directing us to do, we don't ask God, we don't pray about it, we don't meditate on it in his word, we just simply respond negatively. That's what Jonah does. I don't think God is opposed to people wanting to understand, wanting to, wanting to pray, wanting to Look into what he is just to confirm that his, this is his will for us to do these things. What he is opposed to is disobedience. Luke 9, you're familiar with it. There's a man who says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him what? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. You know what Jesus is saying to him? He's saying, count the cost. Count the cost. Know what you're going to do. Joseph, uh, Jonah's reaction and our reaction, the reason why we often rebel is because we respond instantaneously. And I believe that Jonah's reaction, secondly, under the same heading, is that it was premeditated. I believe that, God had, that Jonah had already put God into a certain box of things that he would not do. You ever do that before? Lord, I will do what I will follow you wherever you go, Luke 9. Well, okay, know this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Well, maybe I didn't mean that, Lord. We often put God in a box of what he can call us to do, what he can expect of us. When we put God in a box of what he can expect of us, who is then God? Who is God when we are putting him into a box? If he wants to put you in a box, he can do that. But you can't put him in a box. Because you're not God. He is. I believe that Jonah was premeditated. Certain people he would not help. Certain places he would not go. Certain risks that he would not, that would not take. Jonah had put boundaries on what he was willing to do for God. And therefore, when God called him, Jonah already knew it's almost like Joseph. Joseph already knew when the Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him, he's like, I'm out the door, right? Jonah's the opposite. He's like, God's calling him to do something. He's like, I'm out the door. It's like, okay, you know, we need to evaluate the situations here because one is good and one is, one is not. Number two, second thought this morning, where do we run? The Bible says about Jonah that he ran three places or four places. And you can see them in your notes. Number one is he ran to Joppa. Joppa was the place where he would get on the ship and he would head for Tarshish. Joppa means and is known for its beauty. It means beautiful. 
If you were to take a definition, one of the primary words of the, of the name for this place would be beautiful. It was, it was a beautiful place. It was a, a shoreline place, probably maybe like California. You have all the ocean there in front of you, the, the huge, massive body of water. You can go to the beach and you can see all of these things. This was what Joppa was. This was the kind of place that Joppa was. And I'll help you understand why I believe that that is there here in a moment. Tarshish, on the other hand, was a town in Spain that was um, known as uh, a few things. The meaning of the word and the place was known as the region of the stone, or the word means yellow jasper. And yellow jasper was just a a very available stone that that was in Tarshish, that many people would go there to get this stone, to, to, get, um, to have this stone produced for them, and then they would take it back with them. What this stone was, is it was a, a representative, or they believed that it had been given special spiritual powers to protect people from negativity. It was kind of like a positive stone. I mean, people, you know, you have in America, we have our, um, our come on, help me out here. We have, our, we have our stuff, right? The, the rabbit's foot. That's what I was thinking of, was the rabbit's foot. We have these, these um, things that we we're, think are going to make life positive for us. Charms, yeah. Um, we have these things. And so Tarsus was that place. It was a place of, of positivity. You went there to get these positive stones, and then you could, and then you would have, you know, you would have this protection over all negativity, which it really makes a lot of sense why Jonah would go there, right? <laughs> He's escaping this negative moment to go and get a positive stone. I was watching the other day; it was interesting. I was there's a video out of the um, some some guys were Christian guys were evaluating the uh, what's it called um, the Super Bowl, the halftime Super Bowl, and they were talking about how demonic it was and how the the main singers that were involved in that all have connections to demonic activities and things of that nature and very very these five guys very very sexual minded and it's a, there's a few there's a, there's actually quite a few very interesting articles on the the scope and he, and they and they even showed some of the um some of the um words to their songs that you really, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard time understanding the words to some of the songs that I hear, and theirs, were, theirs are not any different, but they would describe some of the words to their songs. They literally had to delete some of the words out of their songs because they were so profane. But what was interesting was, is I saw, I saw, I'm just thinking about this, and I was just, you know, I was just meditating on this the other day, and I saw all these guys, and guess what they all had hanging around their necks? Yep, all of them. Crosses right around the necks. I have no clue about, that's a positivity stone. No clue what it means, no clue what it represents, but they're going for that positivity stone. They're going for that symbol of positivity. This is what Tarshish was about. A little bit about Tarshish geographically. Tarshish was 2,500 miles to the west of Joppa. It would have been quite a long journey to get there. And Nineveh was 500 miles um, Five to 600 miles to the east of Joppa. So you go to the east, you go 500 miles, you're to your calling, but you go to the west, 2,500 miles, and you're away from your calling. And you're a long way away from your calling. 
So that's the, the, the two places initially that, that Jonah runs to, okay? Some might, so, some might say that when Jonah ran, he went to find beauty or positivity, that he knew these two places would be the... Um, would produce that for him. In reality, Jonah wasn't running to Joppa or Tarshish. No, note this. Jonah was not running to Joppa or Tarshish. Where was Jonah running? He was running away from God. And it doesn't just say he was running away from God. It says specifically that he was running away from God's presence. And the reason why it says he was running away from God's presence is because it was, it, was the, it was the gaze of God, it was the face of God, it was the glory of God that Moses could not look at because he was a sinful man. It was the face of God that Jonah could not look at, especially in the moment of defiance against the Almighty God. So Jonah didn't run to these places while he went to these places. What he was running from, he was running from God's glare at him in his sinful moment. He was running from God's gaze at him in his sinful rebellion. Think about this in the book of Luke, chapter number 22, when Peter had just denied the Lord three times after he told the Lord, I will never deny you. You ever thought about that? We, we, we would all be right where Peter is. We would say, Lord, I would never deny you. I would never do this or I would never do that. Peter, probably the most prominent of the Lord's apostles, was put into a situation where he denied the Lord three times. Here's the issue. I was just meditating on this this week. When Peter was in the presence of God and his disciples, he was super bold about being a godly man. But when Peter was in the presence of the Roman soldiers and a woman that was standing around a fire, he was a passive man. It is, it is, it is, it is, I mean, I, 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 that hit me like a ton of bricks. It's easy to stand up here and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's hard is to preach it to the people that are in this world that are dying and going to hell. It's easy to be bold when we're around each other, isn't it? That's what Peter was dealing with. It was easy to say, Lord, I will never forsake you in front of the Lord. But then to stand in front of a, and I mean, he lays it out in the three times that he deals with Peter, that these people, he goes from, he goes down this process where Peter gets to the last one, which is a woman, and he doesn't just deny the Lord, he curses the Lord. It was a hit to me. And sometimes I bite my tongue out in there in the public world, not wanting to say something that I know I need to say about the gospel because I'm afraid of the man that's standing in front of me. Listen to what he says about Peter, Luke 22, 61 and 62, when the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And that's enough, isn't it? The Lord turned and just looked. That's what, that's what Jonah was running from. The Lord did not want to, Jonah did not want to see the Lord's face. Did not want to see the Lord's face. He knew, he knew he was failing. He knew he was running. He did not want to see the Lord in that moment. The Bible says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. 
and he went away and wept bitterly. You know what's interesting? I've often said this, and I think it's true, that Jonah, that, that, not Jonah, that Judas and Peter are, are meant to be in the scripture so that we can understand this concept, that when God gazes at his people who have fallen in sin, some fall on their faces in repentance, and they accept forgiveness, and some destroy themselves. That's what Judas represents. And Peter represents somebody that was broken by God's gaze, but he got up and he preached Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. You see, it's the gaze of God in the midst of your sin that will make you into a usable Christian. It's the gaze of God in the midst of a lost person's sin that will bring them to destruction. The presence of God, his face or his person The Bible says in Revelation 20 and verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from his presence, from his face, the earth and the sky fled away. That means all these heavenly, uh, all of these creatures, the, the angelic, the fallen angelic creatures and all of those who are on earth, when they stand in the presence of the almighty God on the day of judgment, their minds will seek to find another place to be. Why? Because they do not want to experience the gaze of God. They do not want to experience the gaze of God. When running from the presence of God... <coughs> Listen to me, when running from the presence of God, we will run anywhere that takes our mind off of our guilt and his holiness. When running from the presence of God, we will run anywhere that takes our mind off of our guilt and his holiness. I want you to follow with me. Hence, the reason he went to Joppa, that was beautiful. The reason he went to Tarshish, that was positive. The reason why they went to Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress. You see, in running from God, we will find the most distracting things. We will find the things that take our mind off of his face. And we will find those things and we will consume ourselves with those things. It might be beauty, it might be alcohol, it might be sex. It might be wealth or fame or power or drugs or prestige. It might be any of these things. But we will find the one thing that is the most distracting from the face of God. That's why they went to, he went to Joppa. That's why he went to Tarshish, because he would not have to think about God. You know what? God met him along the way, didn't he? Merciful, loving, gracious God meets Jonah on the journey. All of us have a place, don't we? Be honest. All of us have a place that we go to when we don't want to see God's face. All of us have a substance. All of us has a temptation. All of us have an addiction of something that takes us out of God's presence. And you know what? I, I, I often call it when I talk to people who are addicted to things, I call it their safety their safe place. They always go to their safe place. And what it does is it's physically and fleshly gratifying to take their mind off of their guilt. 
The Bible tells us this, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He tells us this, if you hide your sins, you will not prosper. Proverbs 28, 13. Listen to me, the fourth place that he ran, and you'll notice this in the text over and over again, it says that he went down and he went down and he went down and he went down. Running from God is a downward spiral. You're always going to go down when you run from God. This is why the pleasures of this life are not satisfying, but you need more and more and more and more. And it's not just a downward slope, it's a slippery downward slope, isn't it? Remember when my kids were small, Olivia was afraid of going down a slide at the park. It was one of those straight down slides and she sat on the edge and she, she wouldn't go down and dad in his kindness gave her a little nudge and um, she was down the slide and she went on the slide over and over again after that because she loved it so much. But that's the slippery slide of sin. Once you're on it, it's hard to stop. Difficult. I mean, honestly, it's impossible to stop. It takes the power of Christ in you to win. Some of you guys have been on, some of you guys, some of you women have been on a slippery slope of sin for a long time. And you've been hiding it. You've been covering up. It is so easy to hide sin today, folks. There's so much sin at your fingertips in that computer that it is so easy to hide it. There's so much sin in, in other things, substances that you don't have to let anybody else know about. It's right there, available to you, and nobody else has to know. But I want to tell you something. You will stand before the God of the universe one day who created you and gave you, and gave you a opportunity to confess your sin and to make it right with him, and you rejected it because you thought you could hide it from him. Let me tell you something. Adam and Eve thought they could hide from God, and do you know what he very quickly did? He found them. You ain't gonna hide from God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that everything is open and naked before God. Everything is open and naked before God with whom you have to give an account. This is serious stuff. It's a downward spiral. Once you are running from God, it won't be long that you will look back and question how you got where you are. Once you're running from God, the, the speed of your decline will amaze you. I'm going to cover one more this morning, and I'm going to hit the, the last one is a little bit more substantial. What is the price for running? In the narrative of the story, the Lord includes this small phrase. He says, he paid the fare. When you deal with narratives in the scriptures, you never pass over any details like this. It's written in there for a very, very important reason. We don't run from God without a price. We don't run from God without a price. Jonah had to pay the price that he 
that it would have costed him to travel from Joppa to Tarshish. Some scholars believe that he had to pay such a sum that it would have depleted all of the money that he had. In other words, Jonah paid a significant price to run from God. 2,500 miles, a long and pricely journey. What price have you paid or are you paying or are you willing to pay to run from God? Your testimony is on the line when you run from God. Your marriage is on the line when you run from God. Your children are on the line when you run from God. Your sanity is on the line when you run from God. Your life is on the line when you run from God. Your confidence, your hope. Man, I will say this to you, your masculinity is on the line when you run from God. And there's a hundred other things that are on the line. The devil will offer you anything to run from God. That's why the Bible says in the Gospels, what would a man give in exchange for his what would a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what price is what, what is your price? Because the devil will give it to you. But he will expect everything that you have in return. When Jesus was tempted in the, in the, in the Gospels, the devil offered him everything. But he just simply had to give him everything he had. First Samuel 13, verse 14 says this, but now speaking to Samuel, speaking to Solomon, Solomon did not obey the Lord, and here's what he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not commit, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There's a high price to pay to run from God. Jonah was willing to pay that price. And he paid that price. And there's no, there's no reference in the scriptures that he got a refund. There's no reference in scripture that he got his money back because God didn't let, let him get all the way there. Jonah paid the price and still obeyed God. You're not gonna get where you think you're going if you're running away from God. There's a high, high price to pay. Next week, I will deal with why do we run. Several reasons why I believe in Jonah's, in this text of scripture, that we can see some reasons why we run from God, why Jonah ran from God in this situation. I think they'll be helpful for you. My prayer for you this morning, my heart for you this morning is, is that if you are considering running from God, get into his word, get on your knees, count the cost. Don't Act instantaneously. Know that you're going to be drawn to places and things that are going to take your mind off of God and resist that temptation. Allow yourself to stand in the presence of the Holy One and be guilty and ask him for forgiveness. God loves guilty fallen people who know their guilt, doesn't he? And he is so willing to forgive and you know something? I'm going to make a really strong statement. 
God is opposed to those who are wicked who will not admit that they are wicked. The devil's going to offer you whatever it takes to get you to run somewhere other than where God wants you. And it's going to be very, very tempting. And it's going to be very, very temporary. Resist it. And then know this, there's a high price. And it's not just going to, we'll see in the next passage of scripture, it's not just going to affect you. The storm didn't just affect Jonah, but everybody in that boat was about to die. And your decisions to run from God are not going to just impact you, they're going to impact your family. They're going to impact your marriage. They're going to impact your finances. They're going to impact your career. They're going to impact everything about you. Because that's the exchange that you're making. The devil will give you the pleasure, but he will take away everything that's valuable. What would a man give in exchange for his family? What would a man give in exchange for his reputation? What would a man give in exchange for his testimony? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? Father, we are a needy people. God, needy in so many ways. We need to see ourselves for who we are. We need to be willing to stand in your presence and see our failures and see our faults, to see how many times we've run from you. And even in this moment, each one of us can probably think of a way in our life that we are, are still running from you. God, help us to be willing to be honest, to come before your holiness and to be seen as guilty to be condemned as guilty and to plead with you for mercy and forgiveness that only through Christ can be experienced. We have been told in your word that there is no sin that Jesus Christ's blood was not sufficient to satisfy. And therefore we can come and we can be guilty in your presence and know that there is hope in Christ. And I pray that you would help us to do that. Make us mindful of the cost of the high price of avoiding your face and bring salvation to our souls, Lord, if you would. In Jesus Christ's name.